And that drive to explore, that drive to know, when you learn why the sky is blue, when you learn why the sun creates all that energy, it's just, it's cool. It scratches a certain itch that is just really, really satisfying. You're listening to Good Is In The Details. I'm Gwendolyn Dolsky. And I'm Rudy Sallow. And Rudy, what is this show about? You're putting me on the spot today. So, uh, <laughs> uh, this show is about. It's about time speaking, to put you on the spot. It is true. This show, what we like to do on this show, is we like to take experts and we like to learn about what those experts tick. No, this is terrible. Make sure you delete this. This show, <laughs> this show is about uh, trying to apply the ancient, old school tenets of philosophy and seeing if we can take some of those teachings and apply it to this crazy world that we live in. That is current events and, and some self-help and how to be a better parent and how to navigate social media. So we're trying to take some of the old and applying it to some of the crazy new. And sometimes, you know, I'm helpful and I throw in some legal stuff and, and some other comedy related type stuff, even though I'm, I'm not very funny uh, because no one has ever responded on the show that I'm funny and I still take offense to that. But this show is really about talking to the experts, applying some philosophy, throwing in some law and trying to become better people. And that to become a better person, doesn't that take learning how to be good in the details, Gwen? Absolutely. And listeners, I think that we need a review that tells Rudy he is funny. Just, be nice. just do it. Yeah, it would be, on Facebook nice. or tweet it out. That's totally fine. Just one. Yeah. That's all I need. <laughs> I don't need. I don't need a lot. I'm gonna, I don't need a lot. But yeah, that's what we like to do. We're learning. We're learning what we didn't know. We didn't know in the spirit of Socrates. Socrates. Yes. I, from now on, I know what to say. You know what our show is about? Socrates. Socrates. All right. Socrates. Socrates. <laughs> and this episode is very cool. So, you know, I teach a class, uh, Ethical Considerations in Technology, and our guest today is NASA engineer. She worked on the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter and the Kepler Project, Tracy Drain. I saw her TED Talk. I'm going to link it in the show notes. But I think that this is a show for everyone because we are talking about space exploration and we're talking about the mechanics of it. But at the same time, the underscoring idea is just this notion of curiosity and human excellence and how her work is really about... Yeah, the exploration of that and what is possible. And it's very exciting to not only care about her projects, but also what engineering and space exploration can tell us about everyday life. And what I, because oh, I'm that's selfish, right. I want you to know, everybody should know I'm selfish, but I got out of the show, a lot of that stuff. Tracy, excellent guest, so impressed by her and everything that she's done. But I, what I, what I really wanted to talk about is aliens, and 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 this is this is ever, people have made, you, I get made fun of in this during the episode. I get made fun of on Instagram because no. of this. But I legitimately ask the one of the most important questions: Are we alone? And no. what the impact of the answer to that question could have on humanity? And of course, you bring some philosophical teachings regarding that, Gwen. So it's 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 a wonderful episode. Okay, so we get the answer about aliens. <laughs> <laughs> we do. That's perfect. Do. Okay. And let's talk space exploration. There we go. What do you think? Perfect. Thank you for joining the show. It's so exciting to have you on. I would love if you could start out a bit with your background. And then I want to know out of your projects, so this might be hard to narrow down. Was there one that was the most meaningful for you and why? 
Okay, so my name is Tracy Drain. I am a flight systems engineer at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. And in my background, I studied mechanical engineering in school, both for my bachelor's degree and my master's degree. I've been an employee now as a systems engineer at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory for the last 20 years, starting to get a little old now. And in that time, I have had the very great fortune to get to work on five different missions. One is the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, which is still in orbit around Mars. The Juno mission, which got into orbit at Jupiter in 2016 and is still orbiting there. In between there, I worked on the Kepler mission, an exoplanet hunting mission, and then Psyche, just for a couple of years. It hasn't even launched yet. That one's going to go off and study an asteroid in the main belt. Now I'm the flight system engineer for the Europa Clipper mission, which is going to launch in 2024 and head off to study that really cool moon of Jupiter. And it is really, really hard to pick one of them. So as an engineer, right, I'm not working on the science side of the house, but all the things that we do are to enable the scientists to get the data that they need in order to go answer really cool questions about our solar system and our universe. And the one that I think that has been the most paradigm shifting based on what they discovered is Kepler, because we knew about a lot of other planets that had been discovered before Kepler was launched, but Kepler's mission was to determine how common planets were in our galaxy, and also to try to find some planets that were Earth-like, at least in a couple of ways, in terms of their size, kind of Earth-sized planets, and in terms of being close enough to their star and not too far away that they could theoretically be in a habitable zone around the star. And now, with Kepler's data, we kind of understand that there are literally billions and billions and billions of planets in our galaxy. I think the way that they have broken it down is to say that it's not true that every star has a planet, and it's not true that, well, so not every star has a planet, but on average, there is about a planet for every star, right? Some have lots, some have perhaps none. But with our galaxy containing somewhere, I've seen estimates from between, you know, one, two hundred billion stars. That means there are roughly that many planets in our Milky Way galaxy, which is just crazy. Like anywhere you look in the plane of the Milky Way galaxy, the sky is literally dripping with planets. It's ridiculous. <laughs> and, and Tracy, I know we're going to get into this when we talk about the most important question on this podcast, but, but it's going to be the most important question. I'm telling you that right now. So there's, Kepler helped learn that there's billions and billions and billions of planets, but how many of them are Earth-like? What I remember reading is that the number of planets, and, and like I've been off the mission for a few years, so please everyone go Google fact check. It's really easy to go learn what the Kepler discoveries are. But there were at least, I thought, a couple of dozen that were in the Earth-size range, like one to two Earth masses, and that were within the habitable zone of their stars. Now, the tricky bit, right, is that we don't know if they have an atmosphere, right? And you, and you really kind of need an atmosphere if you want to host life as we know it, Jim, because you need protection against the ultraviolet radiation that's coming from the star. If you want to have liquid water on the surface, you need to have the right pressures and all of that jazz, not just temperatures. But um, those are the ones that are starting to look like there's some potential there. So yeah, go fact check. The, the numbers are out there. Do you remember when you were young, the moment when you started to become fascinated with um, with astronomy or with planets and you thought, okay, this is something that I want to pursue. Was there like, was there a film or a story or where you thought, oh, that's a possibility or that's really cool? I think that 
because I was raised by a mom who really loved science fiction, <laughs> I was always exposed to the idea of this fantastical future world of space exploration and always fascinated by the kinds of things that could be out there. But I do remember this one particular moment when I was in high school and it was between my junior and senior years over the summer. Some of us in Kentucky got to go to this program called the Governor Scholars Program. And you, they picked, you know, several kids and we went to one of two different campuses and you got to choose a quote major unquote where you would take like an hour or two of these classes and, and get to study with other kids. Whatever. And I chose astronomy and they took us in the middle of the night out to this dark place. Like I had grown up in the city, Louisville, Kentucky, where there's so much light pollution. You can see stars. And I thought that seeing stars was cool, but it wasn't until that incident where they took us out to where it was actually like really dark and I could see the Milky Way. I'm like, wait, but what is that? You can see that like with your own eyes and you don't need time-lapse photography? Like what? And being able to have our astronomy teacher tell us about why you could see the Milky Way galaxy and give us star maps and show us things around the sky was just, I was hooked. And even before that, I was always thinking a little bit about the potential career in space. But from that point on, yeah, that, that was it. Tracy, as a part of your, you know, the information that you could find out about you online, one of your interests in space says that you were, you were a big science fiction fan, Star Wars, uh, Star Trek, Battlestar Galactica. However, there is a major difference between Star Wars and Star Trek, right? And the, and the difference is Star Wars, much like Game of Thrones, is more <laughs> fantasy versus Star Trek, which technically could still happen because it's still in the future. Do you agree or am I sounding like a crazy person? <laughs> you know, actually, that's a little different from what I personally feel is the main difference between Star Wars and Star Trek, especially when we think about the next generation, which was my jam when I was growing up, right? I thought of Star Wars as kind of like an action film set in space. You had the forces of good and evil who were battling it out and there were chase scenes and blowing stuff up and, and it felt it had that flavor to it. For me, the thing that I love the most about that era of Star Trek is that it was about variety of humans from different backgrounds working together to explore space and peaceful missions. And they always came across these weird things that were going wrong. And they always tried to find nonviolent solutions to things, even though it took me a long time to really realize that that's what I saw as the heart of that show. I love that about Star Trek. And so everyone always has these arguments, right? What do you think is better, Star Wars or Star Trek? I have always loved Star Trek more for those reasons. In working in JPL and in, in, the, in the 20 years that you've worked, in, is those, are those environments more like Star Trek or are they more action, <laughs> adventure, like Star Wars? I'm, I'm, I'm really curious. I just, I just want to know what it's, what it's really like. You know, I've seen, seen The Martian. I, I, you know, you have the scenes with Matt Damon on Mars. And then, you have, then you have the scenes of JPL and the problem solving. There's great scenes like that. But, and I know, you know, to trying to separate fiction from fact here, but that's my insight into your world. So I'm, I'm just trying to get a little bit more of a flavor from somebody on the inside. Yeah, I love that. No one's ever asked me the question that way before. <laughs> but I think it is definitely more like Star Trek. Like, you know, those scenes where they're trying to get somewhere and there's something wrong with the work drive. And so they have to come up with all these creative solutions in order to get there. When we're doing anomaly resolution, things are going a little bit sideways on our spacecraft and we have to figure out what happened, why did that happen, what can we do about it, and sometimes the clock is ticking to get it done. It feels like that, like you're on the bridge or you're in the engineering room trying to come up with a solution to keep your mission going. So Star Trek all the way. That leads me to one of my questions about what is the disposition of the engineer? So I'm curious about the work that you do. What are some things that the general public can learn about life 
from problem solving in engineering? Oh yeah, I love that question too. And especially the type of engineering that I do, which is systems engineering, meaning you take this big complex thing, it has a lot of moving parts and you're trying to go and accomplish some high level mission goal, like get some science, right? And there are so many different focus areas like thermal, keep the spacecraft from getting too hot or too cold, telecom, be able to communicate with the ground, attitude control, get your spacecraft pointed in the right direction. And there are people who focus in all those different areas, but a lot of times when something's going wrong with the spacecraft, it's something that involves multiple areas. And so no one expert is going to be able to come up with a response that is going to be good for the overall spacecraft and the instruments, what we call the flight system. And so a systems engineer needs to be able to understand enough about all those different systems to communicate with the experts, translate back and forth between the experts to the people who are going to be like, what are you talking about <laughs> over there? And come up with a balanced response that is going to be good for the whole spacecraft. And I think in that systems engineering kind of job, communication is so important. And it's not just about understanding and communicating, articulating the technical detail. A lot of times it's about understanding the human beings who are doing the work because you can be so laser focused on your own area that you have blinders on and it's difficult to see other perspectives when we're under the gun, like stressful situations, trying to get something done, the clock is ticking, people can get a little heated. <laughs> so it's good for people to have the ability to remind people we're all trying to do the right thing. These are the knobs we have on the table. We're going to choose a solution that isn't going to make everybody happy, but as long as the spacecraft is safe, it's okay. So there's those basic kinds of skills of how to communicate, how to see multiple perspectives, how to listen and try to pull the right things out of everybody and then build a consensus in a timely manner that um, can be applied to a whole bunch of different things in life. I got a really quick question for you, Tracy, and, and this is going to give you a little bit of a window into my thinking about myself. I'm terrible at math. I'm terrible at science. And because the reasons why I'm terrible at those things is because I feel like you can't, you know, pardon my friend, you can't BS them. Like they are what they are. Like math is math. Science is science. However, if you're in law and you're in politics or you're in, you're in history, Eh, those things, those are those are kind of squishy. You can you can you know play around with that. You can play around per, with perspectives. Am I right or am I wrong? Is science science and math math? Because what I'm hearing from you is, well, no. Some there's an engineer here that has this perspective. They have this experience. So like, what I'm trying to ask you is, is can I become an engineer? Is it too late for me? Can I can I can I play around with some stuff? I'm I'm fascinated. I don't know what in the world you would build, Rudy. I'm trying. I'm, I'm a, I, you're fascinated. Don't, don't get me started. There's not enough time. Tracy's on a time constraint. That is so great. So there, there's two answers to your question. Um, number one, it's hilarious that the things that you didn't like about math or science is that they were so concrete, right? That, that's actually the thing that I found the most reassuring. When I'm in learning math class, like you add two and two and you get four, like that is the answer. And I remember the first time I was standing at the blackboard, I have, I have like a little bit of PTSD from this. When I was a little kid, and we were supposed to be doing subtraction and it, subtraction was quite new. And I had apparently copied the problem wrong and I put the smaller number on top and the bigger number on the bottom. And so I tried to do the subtraction and like my brain was exploding, like it wasn't working and I'm starting to freak out a little bit. And the teacher comes over and she's like, no, no, it's totally okay. You just copied the problem wrong, do this. And then she goes, you will be able to answer that problem later, but we haven't gotten to negative numbers. And I'm like, oh, negative numbers, like this whole new window on the universe has been open. <laughs> but she restored my faith in math because it's supposed to make sense. It's supposed to be repeatable. Like two people should be able to do the same problem and get the right answer. I love that about math. 
the reason why your the answer is not exactly the same when you get to engineering complex systems is because there is not a single right answer. And, and I'll, I'll say this way, like say we have a spacecraft and we're trying to communicate down to the earth and we have these, this dish on the ground listening to our spacecraft. We have a much smaller dish on the spacecraft aiming at the ground. And there are two different ways that you can make a really strong telecom link. You can have a lot of power in your signal, so you're essentially screaming at the earth and it makes it easy to pick up your signal. Or you can have a fainter but more tightly beamed signal and then point it really, really well. Like imagine you have a light bulb. In the first case, it's a light bulb. If your light bulb is really, really, really bright, then you can pick it up on the ground, even if you're not aimed very well. If you have a laser pointer and you're aiming it at that dish and you're off a little bit, you're not going to pick it up on the ground. And so when we're trying to make a spacecraft that communicates well, you can either lots of power in your telecom signal or less power and aim it really well. And either of those two things will work, but there are limitations. If you're a solar powered spacecraft and you need lots of power just for your telecom system and to keep the spacecraft warm and to run all your instruments and, 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 your solar arrays have to get bigger and bigger and bigger and that makes your spacecraft heavier. You need a bigger launch vehicle. So overall, that might not be the best solution. But if you, instead of using lots and lots of power in your telecom signal, you use less power, but then you point your spacecraft really well, well, now you just need a really fine-tuned guidance and control system to be able to point very well. Sometimes, depending on the spacecraft, it's easier to do that. And so you need different perspectives. You need to look at the big picture. You can choose either answer. It's just you have different collateral things to deal with depending on the choice that you made. Back to Rudy, what you're thinking is that while engineering and math and science are objective, the expression of it is a value. In order for Tracy, in order for your work to work, it has to be mathematical, it has to be based on science. But the fact that we spend all of this human energy into going out into space, that's a value, which leads me to my question. Why do we do space exploration? Yeah, what's, great. what's it for? Great if we were to ask the, the layperson, what is it for? What do we do it for? Mm-hmm. Now I we're have talking. two more answers for you. <laughs> now we're getting into the good stuff. Brand's leading, leading me up. I'm, She's I'm teaming so, up here. This has nothing to do with you. <laughs> <laughs> I actually have my own motives because I think I'm thinking of Aristotle a bit that he talks about that if you keep asking people, well, what do you do this for? What is it for? What is it for? Mm. Eventually, people come to this notion of eudaimonia, which means excellence. And I think that space Mm. exploration is in that ballpark. So, um, but that's me, the philosophy professor saying that. So I would love to know, you know, if somebody's asking, what are we doing this for? Okay. So that's all really cool, but why, what would you, how would you? I have two different answers for people. And it's because in my experience, one answer resonates more with a certain type of people and one answer resonates more with a different type of people. There are people, let's see, I'll say it this way. I think that humans kind of come hardwired with this natural driving sense of curiosity, right? I've actually given a little TED talk on this topic where you look at little kids and you see them running around exploring their world and they learn something new and you can just see their little eyes light up. It's, it's exciting and fun and wonderful for them just to learn, not just to, to eat something that tastes good or to be warm and you know all the things that are necessary for basic health and happiness, right? And that drive to explore, that drive to know when you learn why the sky is blue, when you learn why the sun creates all that energy, it's cool. It scratches a certain itch that is just really, really satisfying. And there's a group of people who look at space exploration from that point of view. And even if it was just pure adding to human knowledge, they would think it would be totally worth it, right? 
And then there's a group of people who says, well, okay, <laughs> I don't find that to be so worth it. So what are other reasons that you could be doing it for? And I answered that question this way. In order for us to continue living on this earth as a species, we have to kind of not wreck it. <laughs> and that apparently has started to be a little bit hard. And in order to do a better job as stewards of our planet, we need to understand better how it works and how the things that we're doing are impacting the climate, for example. And the climate is very complex and it's very difficult to make accurate models that show you, A, what's going on now and how things are going to change over time. It's easier scientifically to be able to model something complex if you have other examples of it so that you can make different models and see if your models predict the right things in, in very different examples. So when we look at Venus, for example, that's a great little micro microcosm of, well, not microcosm, it's a whole planet. <laughs> it's a great example of runaway greenhouse effect, a planet that has these thick blankets of clouds that trap in heat from the sun and just make it really, really, really hot there. When we look at Mars, a planet that is a little bit farther away from the sun, it's actually at the edge of the sun's habitable zone. Um, it's a bit smaller. It doesn't have much of a magnetic field. We think Scientists think it was warmer and wetter in the past, but it has lost a lot of its water and what atmosphere it has seems to have leaked off into space over time. And so if scientists can understand what's going on in those two very different worlds, it helps them do a better job more accurately modeling what's going on with our own world. And that kind of thing, you really can't get any other way than space exploration. And there's plenty of other examples like technology development that gets developed for space that ends up being very useful for people here on Earth and various and sundry things. Isn't it Tang because of NASA? Yeah, I remember Tang as a kid too. Isn't that, isn't that <laughs> That's what I heard anyway. <laughs> I've got a kind of a, a little bit of a corollary question on top of that. Right before this, I do this little clubhouse chat thing on Fridays at three. It's called the future, uh, future talk, cities, transportation, and other stuff. We were talking about one boondoggle of a project in California where I said for years that I've come up with a different way of approaching that project where I think it would it would be a great test bed. It would, it would lay out the future of driverless cars, driverless car technology, uh, learning and, and transportation, and really like launch California and launch humanity into the next phase of, of, of the future of transportation. And somebody on the call brought up a, a great kind of analogy that I, that I was like, oh, I got to bring this up on the call. They're like, yeah, you know, that's a moonshot. Like you, your idea is so like out there, it's a moonshot and that'd be great. That'd be so wonderful for, for the future of transportation, but how are you ever going to convince anybody to do a moonshot? And we were like, well, you know, somebody convinced NASA to do the moonshot back in the past and look at all the benefits that have come from that. So like when you're going to the people or you're going to a government agency and, you know, purse strings are tight, like how do you make a financial argument about the benefits of space or exploration? It's really fortunate for me, right, as an engineer, that I wind up coming into the mix either after a mission has already been selected and funded, and then I'm like, yes, give me my marching orders, we'll go get this thing done. But um, when I'm talking to people out in the general public, and I sometimes get people who come and ask me, look, point blank, like, why are we spending money on that? And they're not satisfied with my two answers exactly, that I gave before. Exactly, that question. How do you answer that, that question? <laughs> Well, I, I tend to tell people to think about it this way. When they hear like this mission costs $500 million or that mission costs a billion dollars, when you're thinking about your own personal finances, that seems like infinity. <laughs> like, well, why would you spend that kind of money that way? But I tend to think about it this way. For even for a mission that costs a billion dollars, say, if every man, woman, and child in the country bought a cup of coffee from a coffee house, right? That would pay for that whole mission. There's what, like 350 million people in the country or so. And so when you think about it that way, or if, you know, half the people in the country went to go see a movie, that would pay for XYZ mission. 
it starts to seem more, well, that's worth it. Like, let's all skip a coffee and go send a spacecraft to Jupiter, please, kind of thing. You know what I think also is important is this, um, is science education, because when you think about it with the purse strings, is that since we have a representative government, the higher educated and curious and excited about space exploration that you have the citizens, then they will elect people who then will also represent that interest. But that interest isn't going to be there if you're not, you know, working with, you know, high school and universities in order to kind of get that curiosity going. That's partly where the chain, chain of ideas, yeah. If a government official ever came to you and say, please tell me some kind of a benefit that I can go back to my constituents to keep you uh, funded, how, how would you respond to that? Yeah, so still happily above my pay grade, but I do know that there, there are people whose job it is to do those kinds of things. And like we mentioned a little bit earlier, the whole idea of technology transfer, things that get developed for the use in space. And there are, I think if you go and look for if I can figure out the Google search terms, I think you can look for space technology transfer or something like that. And I think even every year annually is published a report of kinds of technologies that are developed for space that end up being really beneficial for stuff here on the ground. Um, and you know, there's something else that you said that made me remember back to your earlier question about how lessons that we've learned, maybe we phrase it differently, in the kinds of job that I'm doing can be applied to real life, right? And I think about in systems engineering, when there's a problem that we're trying to, to resolve, the one important, really important thing is that we all have to come to the table prepared to understand the other person's perspective. So when we think about, like, again, I'm going to put on my, I'm not an engineer, let's pretend I'm a financial analyst hat, and are going into a room and people are arguing, should we spend money for space? Should we spend money for school? Should we spend money for food? And the answer is, we, yes, well, food, yes, that's <laughs> cool. Those are important things. And I think that I would love it if people would approach this with the systems engineering perspective, which is maybe I'm coming in with my own personal opinion of what the answer is, but I really want to hear what you have to say, understand from your perspective why you're saying the things you're saying. I want to understand why you think you are right and try to figure out if there's something about what you're saying that will cause me to change my perspective. Because I think that too often when people come together and especially talking about things that are very polarizing, like politics, like finances, like whatever, people tend to listen to the other argument, listening for the things that they will be able to beat down, right? I'm listening for your weak point so that I can attack it, <laughs> which is not the best way to come to a kind of a consensus as opposed to listening to what you're saying to see if there's something that I have never thought of before, if there's something that I haven't understood before. And even if that means at the end of the day, people are still going to be dis disagreeing, at least they will be more informed <laughs> in their disagreement and not just knocking down straw men from the other side point of view. You know, something I think that can't be quantified, but is definitely a factor is the morale that, you know, just like recently with, uh, with the news about Mars and seeing everybody jump up and down and then everybody is so excited that it's not only the people who worked on it, but that's what I meant. Like at the beginning, this is a representation of what is possible for humanity. And I think that that's really important. So on that note, I want to ask you, how do you celebrate? What is it like? You know, we see the images on the news of people jumping up and down and being excited, but what is it like for you and for your team when there is a win on a project? Yeah, and it's interesting because it's a little different if you are like personally involved in the mission, right? Because it's your own blood, sweat, and tears that got there. And it's such a huge cathartic release, like you've climbed a mountain and now you're at the top. And it just, yeah. it's amazing. Uh, lots of jumping up and down, celebrating happening then. And even if you are like me, I, I had nothing to do with perseverance, yay, go colleagues. <laughs> <laughs> but it's still just to know that you are attached to a 
institution that has been able to accomplish something like that, you get a little of the backwash glory <laughs> and you just feel really, really happy. It's that, uh, I forget, I cannot pronounce that word, eudaimonia. eudaimonia. Oh, eudaimonia, yeah. Eudaimonia, thank you. <laughs> it's, it's that deep sense of accomplishment that is really hard to get any other way. And then, like, I think for the public, like my mom loves to watch these things, <laughs> that even if, or now that we're all like all quarantined at our houses and watching it, there's still the getting an opportunity to see the footage. I don't know how many of you or your listeners have watch the footage, like the cameras that showed looking down on the rover and looking up at the parachute, like that was really new for us to be able to see. And it just makes you feel even more of a virtual presence. You feel like you are landing on Mars with the rover, which was really fantastic. And even though we can't go out and have a big party right now because COVID, it's still nice to just kick back and have a big smile and like have whatever your favorite celebratory beverage is, like decaf coffee with coconut milk. <laughs> it, it's just, it's nice to bask in that sense of human's accomplishment. Yeah. And it's historical. I mean, and it's also, like you said, it's a human accomplishment. It's, yeah, it's for, it's for everyone. Do you have any thoughts about manned space missions or what are, what are the advantages to not having somebody on the mission or to doing robotics or what are the pros and cons going on there? Are we going to have more people in space or I don't know. So maybe yeah. with the cameras, is it, is it necessary or what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I'll just say that I know there are a lot of different perspectives out there. And to me, I think of them as just being different, right? There are things you can do with robotic spacecraft that like, they can take a lot of extra G-forces. We don't have to send air and water. Right? Mm -hmm. There are things you can do with robotic spacecraft that um, seem more straightforward to me, maybe just because that's where I have been working my entire career. And I do know that over time, people have gotten, like the, the rovers, the orbiters, they have gotten a little more personified and people are used to being involved in things at a distance, virtual presence kind of thing. And it feels a little more like we're all as humans involved, even if there aren't people there. But I also do think that there is an indescribable sort of intangible quality when there is a real physical human being that is out setting foot on another surface for the first time. And that's hard to quantify. And yeah. I think there's a, another level of attachment that people have, another level of involvement or excitement or pride or whatever when there are human boots on the ground somewhere. And I know it's, it's true that humans have this innate ability to be flexible and be creative and innovate and problem solve and do all these things that is really hard to program into autonomous systems. We're getting better and better and better at that over the years. But I think there's always going to be a difference there too, in terms of what humans versus robots can do. It just means different missions are appropriate for different of those things. Or when you know you're going to do one or the other, that makes you design the mission a little differently. Okay, Rudy, I'll, I'll yield to your, what you've been waiting to ask this whole time. You know, here, here's the question that I, that I really wanted to ask. Um, as a result of the Mars Reconnaissance mission, uh, what did we learn about the climate of Mars from that mission? Are ideas of the climate of Mars change as a result of that? Because I know that was one of the, the points of that mission. Like, is, is Mars as uninhabitable as humanly possible? You know, if Rich Zurich or Seuss Makar are watching this or listening to this, they're going to smack me because I'm sure they tried to tell me about this back when I was working on the mission. But me, engineer, non-scientist, I can tell you some of the things that I personally remember um, being an engineer on that mission and hearing the scientists talk about what they were seeing, right? Because um, one of the things that I found just fascinating, and, and maybe this isn't necessarily a climate thing, but it's just a really cool picture, is that there are things 
changing on Mars on timescales that are human timescales, right? Like the high-rise imager took pictures of a particular area that had these geysers that were like shooting something, maybe CO2 gas, I don't know, out of the ground, and then depositing darker material onto the surface. And then as the spacecraft came by sometime later, they took another picture of that area, you could see more of those patterns. And so like geological changes still happening on Mars, super cool. There was another image that was taken near one of the cliffs along the edge of one of the poles, like the polar ice caps. And you could literally see huge clouds of dust as there was like avalanches coming down the side. Super cool, like stuff happening in real time that you could spot in these images. And I know that the um, instruments that were looking at like storms could see like these really interesting storms that looked kind of like hurricanes. I don't know what they were made of, like richer uh, <laughs> can tell you. And so you can watch like real dynamic weather patterns happening. You know that there are dust storms that happen that can be global dust storms that cover the entire planet for days and days at a time, which is really cool. I don't know how much of that stuff the scientists already knew ahead of time, but those are the things that kind of stick out to me as an engineer getting to ride along with the scientists and see what they were discovering that I thought was super cool. It was, I mean, as we both know, that that was not the question that I wanted to ask, but, I, but, I, but that, <laughs> that, yeah, question, nice that question did dancing. come up. And it's kind of a good segue into, in, into my question. And this is legitimate. This is not me trying to be funny. I'm being 100% accurate from the heart here, like I always am on here. I am afraid of alien life. I just am, period. I, when, I, when I read news stories or anything out there that even points to it, like I totally, totally freak out about it. And there was this article, like, you know, in our pre-interview, I was referring to an article that was in, you know, in The Economist, and I've seen it elsewhere. And it, but the one I'm referring to is um, from The Economist, that a distinguished astronomer sees evidence of extraterrestrial life. And there's this the, this object that, that came, it says, it starts off with the article, um, the object came hurtling in from deep space from the direction of Vega. It's a star 25 light years away across the orbital planet. And it was a, this object, you can, you can search this online. It looks like a cigar flying in space, to be perfectly honest with you. And there, so there's, a, there's a well-respected astrophysicist at Harvard that is like, nope, I'm convinced that that was definitely some kind of an alien ship that has come here and they're checking us out. And I have not been able to sleep properly in months. <laughs> so please, you know, tying this back into the Kepler question, you said billions of planets. You also, and the point of it was, hey, how many of the of those planets out there are, are, are kind of like Earth? Because Earth is is the Goldilocks planet, right? It's, it's not too hot. It's not too this. It's not too far away. It's not too close. It was the right place for this phenomenon uh, called human beings, which, you know, I'm convinced we're the only, you know, beings in the galaxy because I'm arrogant and, and fearful. <laughs> but you said there was dozens of other Earth-like planets out there. And that scares me because I'm, like I said, I'm afraid of alien life. So please help me sleep at night by telling me there are no aliens. Okay, there's a lot to unpack here. <laughs> and here we go. <laughs> so... It probably bears repeating, right, that the, that the Kepler mission could kind of see whether things were around the same size as the Earth, and if they were within the right zone, that if there was water, it could potentially be liquid on the ground, right? That there's so many things that Kepler cannot tell about the planet, can't tell if there's an atmosphere, can't tell if there actually is water, like can't really tell exactly what the density is, though with follow-up observations, they can kind of get an idea. And so the couple dozen, go fact check the numbers, of planets that are in that maybe right size range, maybe right distance range, we still don't know if they are actually habitable, right? 
So if that, if that helps you sleep <laughs> a little bit. And uh, so the second piece that I will say is, yeah, it, it really is truly phenomenal that there are just so many planets out there. But the thing that is also phenomenal in a way that is disappointing for people who really want there to be life forms that we can get in touch with is just the sheer distance that they are away from us. And I know when we talk about light years, it's hard for us to kind of imagine what that means. And so I'll throw out a couple of facts there, right? Our sun is about 93 million miles away from us. And the light from the sun takes about eight minutes and 19 seconds to get here. If the sun blew up right now, we would literally not know about it for a little over eight minutes because we would still be getting the old light until suddenly there was no light. <laughs> you just and scared Rudy. You, Why did you say that? You just scared Rudy. Rudy. I mean, wait a minute. <laughs> I thought I had at least another four billion oh, years on this planet before oh, the sun was going down. I'm definitely not sleeping <laughs> for four billion Rudy's years. Face. This okay. is, is terrible. Please, I, okay. please make me feel better. <laughs> it's still going to be like four and a half to the sun. Don't be scared. Don't be scared. But, uh, but if you try to drive in a straight line, 93 million miles going 100 miles an hour, it would take you over 100 years to go that far. So like, that's a long way in terms of the kinds of speeds we're used to thinking about in human scales. Now, a light year means you set light going, and instead of stopping it at eight minutes and 19 seconds, just of measly 93 million miles, you let it keep going for more minutes and hours and weeks and months for a whole year. And that distance is a light year. Like it is super far. And if that makes your brain melt, like it does my brain, you can think about it this way. The Voyager mission, the Voyager spacecraft is traveling at something like 35,000 miles an hour. And if we were to somehow point it in the right direction to land in the right amount of time at where our nearest star system is, which is like four light years away, it would take 80,000 years to get there. And that's just four light years for our nearest star system if you could travel at 35,000 miles an hour. Right? Now, when you think about the planets that Kepler has found, you'd have to go like look up what the numbers are, but I think they're in something like 200 to 2,000 light years away, like really, really far um, in terms of anything we can make go at reasonable speeds from the technology that we have today. It is, so it's not just that we're separated really far from these planets in space, but we're also separated really far in time. Like our solar system has been around for about four and a half billion years. And when you think about how much time there have been humans on the planet that have even had something as complex as radio to be able to beam things out even in all directions, not even aimed, right? Not even trying to include specific messages for aliens yet. It's a tiny, like ridiculously, almost infinitesimal <laughs> fraction of the time that humans have been around. And we are perfectly capable of wiping ourselves out like any minute now. And so who knows how much longer intelligent life is going to be around on this planet. And so when you think about, is there a possibility for intelligent life to arise? How far away is it? Did it maybe arise and then kill itself off a billion years ago or 50 million years ago? Like the time scales and the distances are so huge that even if there was a possibility for intelligent life to be out there, I personally am extremely pessimistic that we would ever actually cross each other like ships passing in the night. Forget it. I'm, I'm super pessimistic. So, so, you know, have a Coke, go to bed. <laughs> I will. I'm going to, I'm going to dismiss, I'm going dis, to dismiss this cigar shape. I'm going to dismiss, I'm going to dismiss this thing. I'm going to be like, you know what? Oh, Tracy said hey, this thing no, is, no. this thing is way out there. I'm going to dismiss I have one more, one more thing to say about that. I'm glad you brought that up again, because 
the one thing we, we to go back to the comment earlier about math is math, science is science. Like there are things that are repeatable. One of the things that's beautiful about science is we make advances in knowledge because one science can do something, another science can do the same thing, and they'll get the same answer or a similar answer so that they can show, yes, I am proving what you did. You can study a thing. Someone else can study a thing and come up with the same thing. It works for stuff that we look at in space, for things that we look at underwater, microscopic things. Like that's how science works. And the idea that there might be a single scientist who makes a conclusion about something and then like no other scientists <laughs> agree, the, the way scientific progress works means that thing is probably not true. Now, when you look back in history, when like major advances are made, yeah, there might be a couple of lone voices crying in the, in the woods, like, like the folks who determine the theory about dinosaurs being killed off by a big meteor impact, right? Everyone thought they were freaking insane, but people went off and started studying things. They were putting together evidence. There's that whole iridium layer between the KT boundary, if I didn't get that wrong. Sorry, not a paleontologist. But there are ways that scientists could go out investigating whether those things that sound crazy at first are actually true or not. And when science scientists do start to make discoveries, even though there might be some time lag to building scientific consensus around things, you're gonna hear about it, right? It'll be shouted from the rooftops, like this thing happened, OMG. And when we get, if, if, wow, when Tracy, if we get to the point <laughs> where there's any evidence that really speaks to real, like, oh, there could be life forming out there. Like it's not gonna be like one person forever and you never hear about it again. <laughs> But what, Data, but, what, yeah. but, but what if, what if, I'm just throwing really? this out there, there's, there's philosophical, no, I really, I, I'm serious about this, just because, really, truly, I don't <laughs> think, hum, I don't think humankind, I don't think, um, I'm, I'm not going to get into religious thought or anything, I don't know if religious thinking and, and the way that our, a way that we've been taught theologically, I don't know if it could survive knowing it's that connected. they're, they're See, it's totally I, I, connected. It's, I think it's mutually been, exclusive. I think it's mutually exclusive. There that, that's been, my opinion. From the time of Socrates' trial, he was accused of being an atheist. And the reason he was accused of being an atheist is because he was reading the works of Anaxagoras. And Anaxagoras was an astronomer, an ancient Greek astronomer. Mm, and so based on those grounds, he was charged with atheism. It would be like just so we still have this i mean from galileo right like or even today when you're having discussions about genetic engineering and saying like oh no 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 don't do that we still have for some reason we're moving forward in science that there are people who say push back you're not allowed to do that but we still always do because we're just curious but i was going to say rudy wait until you hear about brian green and that there is maybe a multiverse that there could be a parallel universe of all of this happening right now we're not just one universe <laughs> Tracy, thoughts on that? Tell there's me. Another, there's another one. Please, I, I say, please say no. Please say, please say there's no alternate universe. I'm looking to you. To I got nothing. A multi, not alternate. Maybe one of our, one, maybe one of our assumptions is that this is just one universe, that there might not just be a universe. This is string theory, though. Tracy, do, 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 do. Do science engineers like you and, and your, your, your colleagues, do you guys have these discussions? Or do you think that, that, <laughs> oh, gotcha. that philosophers and, and law people are the ones that are having these ridiculous, like, I'm fascinated. What do you guys talk about for fun? Oh, we totally have these kinds of discussions, but usually just not when recorded. I don't want to be quoted. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but there, yeah, just, and it, it's really super fun, especially when you get like quantum theorists in a room with people who are studying dark matter and yeah, the kinds of things that get discussed are like really, really mind altering. <laughs> Lots of fun. Well, I want to wrap up if we could um, 
what would be some advice that you would give for future engineers, for mechanical engineers, aerospace engineers? What um, would you tell them that they should focus on? I know something in your TED Talk, you talked about success is working through failure, and I thought that was really great advice. But, um, you know, what does the future hold or what are you hoping with future engineers and what could they learn from you or some basic skills? Yeah. So the one thing I really wish someone would have taken me aside my freshman year of college and said to me, I don't know if I would have listened because, you know, 19 year olds, come on. But, but I wish they had said your goal in going through college to get an engineering degree is not to memorize as many equations as you can and to figure out how to solve the specific kinds of problems you have seen before later, right? Like that whole do this problem, do a problem that's exactly like it, do a problem that's exactly like it. And when you get to work, you'll be doing the same like, no, <laughs> that isn't how it works. And in the real world, what you're trying to do is take problems that no one's ever solved before and figure out how to solve them. And therefore, the most important thing an engineer can learn, and I love that I think this is true of philosophy too, mm -hmm. you're there to learn how to think logically and to learn how to learn so that you can be confronted with some brand new novel problem and figure out how to break it down into pieces, put together a framework of how to come at those pieces to get at a solution that makes sense. That's what engineering is all about. It's creative problem solving with the tools you have in hand. I think it's, it's a little bit horrifying that the way we teach kids in college, that it's frighteningly easy to lose sight of that. Hey, I Tracy, totally Tracy, agree. Really quick, I'm really sorry, but Glenn, there's a, Tracy, there's a major difference between engineering and philosophy, right? You guys no, get, get really. problems solve, solved. You have numbers. Did you and notice? Stuff. Did in you philosophy, notice there's no answers, right? <laughs> Tracy, no. that's the- that's, Did you notice she on, said help me engineers out. and philosophers, the lawyers <laughs> are there that. for when the problems get go amok. <laughs> we call them lawyers. Yes. <laughs> We're I, like, I, we I have feel, this creative I idea. I feel this whole episode was against me <laughs> and my, my fears and my insecurities, whatever, Gwen. So, why I'll make you feel better. I'll make you feel better. You want creative engineers. You've got a creative lawyer. It's like, <laughs> going to jail. <laughs> see, now, but see, now, here's the thing. I'm going to have to ask Gwen and she'll have to lock you in a room or me in a room and educate us both. Because what I have absorbed about philosophy, right? Because sometimes we think about philosophy as people sitting around chewing on problems and just making up stuff and like, it could be this, it could be that, like it's all stupid. I don't think that's what it is. I think that philosophers, at least my, my vision of an ideal philosopher, Gwen, help me out here, is that you are really, you're trying to learn how to apply a thought, like principles, a thought process. If this, then that, right? There are the logical yeah. proofs, there's real progression, there's a structure to it, which is, I will grant you not identical to the structure in math and, and science and engineering, but I think there's some overlap. There's this way of using your brain rationally that we don't always focus on teaching people to do because it is a skill right and i think that all people could benefit from learning to think more like that like i have an opinion and my opinion is based on something and let me articulate to you what it is and when you can do that that's when you actually make space for real discourse and an ability to change people's opinion. Because if you just come and say, I believe this because I believe it, and that's just the way it is, like, okay, well, we're done talking. That's someone says that to me, that might be like the equivalent of someone saying to you that we never landed on the moon. <laughs> that's, that's, that's my version of a flat earther. What you just said is like, I believe it and that's it. That's my version of the flat earther. But you're right. I mean, that's in right. philosophy, I say we're doing problem solving, but the problems that we're trying to work on don't occupy space. So 
if we were to have a discussion about this mug, it would be a very short conversation. We can use the five senses. If we're going to have a conversation about is there justice and what is it, how do you define it? It doesn't occupy space. So it takes those mm-hmm. if then kinds of discussions or what is the meaning of life? Like Aristotle coming up with the notion of eudaimonia, um, that doesn't occupy space. So you just have to think through, wait a minute, what are we doing everything for? What is anything for? And it's happiness or eudaimonia. Happiness is a terrible English translation, but eudaimonia seems to be the only thing that is self-sufficient and for its own sake that everything else is that we do everything for. Yeah. Nice. I love that. Can we do this every day? Oh, that's so much fun. (laughs) Hey, I I mean, please come back on the pod. I would love that. And I'm sure that in the meantime, Rudy's going to have some more questions to ask you. I'll go read that article. Some more existential questions (laughs) that he'll be asking from his couch. We're going (laughs) to, we're going to learn a little bit about, we're going to learn a bit about aerospace and mechanical engineering and then Rudy's fears. Please, oh my God, there's not enough time in the world. Tracy, if you read the article and you just email me, just just tell me everything's gonna be okay. That's all, that's all I need, I don't need anything else. I just need somebody to say everything's gonna be fine. That'd be great, I'd appreciate it. By the way, I'd, I'd, I'd like to say, the very first episode that, I, that we did with Gwen, which we were introducing each other, she told me that she did this class about, um, she taught ethics uh, to engineers or, or something along those lines, and I, and I made kind of a funny joke about do, do engineers even have feelings? Tracy, you have completely eliminated my ridiculous thinking because you have great <laughs> feelings. You're, you're, you're a great person to talk to. This has been a lot of fun because the fact that you've even entertained my ridiculous fears means that you're a great caring person. So thank you very much. Aw, I feel like I did my good deeds for the week. Sure thing, Rudy. <laughs> you did, Tracy. Thank you so much. And yes, absolutely, we want to have you back on the pod, for sure. And I'm going to be sharing this with my engineering students. So thank you so much. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening. If you have any questions about this pod, you can get in touch. Good is in the details pod at gmail.com. Or we're on Instagram at good is in the details pod. We're also on Facebook. If you're enjoying the show and you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please scroll down to the bottom and hit that five-star review. And if you'd like to support the show, we're on Patreon at patreon.com slash good is in the details. Okay, until next time. Bye.